Good morning, Courtright. My name is Justin, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright, and it is my privilege to be preaching this morning from Psalm 130 as we continue our series uh, that we're calling Why We Worship. And today we're going to be exploring the act of confession. This is the point in the service where we normally do the prayer of confession after the musical worship, typically before the sermon. Or sometimes we'll have a song after the prayer of confession. Either way, it's an integral and, uh, and weekly part of our service here at Courtright and across the globe, really. But we're going to do it at the end today. What we're essentially going to do is we're going to talk about the act of confession, and then we're going to do it, hopefully with a renewed sense of meaning and purpose. In a moment, we're going to hear uh, from Luke Burton, one of our Profession of Faith students, as he reads this psalm. But before we do that, let's take a moment and pause and pray. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may the Spirit of God rest on us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Amen. Hello, my name is Luke, and today we'll be reading from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, keep a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for morning, more than watchmen wait for morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel of all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this psalm is a part of a series of psalms that we call the Songs of Ascents, and they often have short, thoughtful, hope-filled uh, words, and they prepare us for something that is to come. We don't have any specific context for this particular psalm, uh, nor do we know who authored it, but in particular, these are psalms that the people of God would sing as they ascended, hence the word ascent, on the road to Jerusalem for a religious festival or feast that they were preparing to attend. These psalms, and this psalm in particular, were intended to prepare one's heart for, to experience God, his people, his presence, and his word. You could imagine the people of God singing these songs en route to a festival, their hearts just full, bursting full of anticipation for what was going to occur. And these songs, they would form their heart towards God. Psalm 130 here, at least at the very beginning, is a psalm of confession. In the first couple of verses, the writer starts out by saying that he is crying out from the depths. Now, the depths here is a pretty significant word picture. You can imagine someone stranded out at sea in a storm or burrowed in a cave with no escape. It's a place of despair. It's not a place you want to be at all. The solution here is beyond oneself. Without intervention, this person will die. 
And the cry of the psalmist is simply that God would hear. There are other psalms where they use this interesting language. They say, God, would you incline your ear to me? And what we're really saying here, what the psalmist is saying is, it's a picture of God moving and responding to our pleas for help. This person is crying out from the depths for God to hear. They're, they're not crying out here for about an illness or about financial ruin or persecution or some abstract sense of despair. In verses 3 and 4, we actually see that it is guilt that is causing the writer to cry out for, to God. In other words, the psalmist has sinned. We don't know what. We don't know the gravity of it, how serious it was. But all we know is that it has put a wedge between the writer and God. And this is just what happens when we sin. But the writer knows and trusts in the person and the character of God. They know that God not only forgives, but that God keeps no record of our sins. That, as the prophet Micah says, our sins are cast into the depths of the sea using and borrowing that same language, that same image. The psalmist asks an interesting question after this. He says, If you, Lord, kept a record of our sins, who could stand? What does it mean to stand before God? If you think about the image, standing before God ultimately means that we are in relationship with him, in good standing with him. That we come before him not as equals by any stretch of the imagination, but that we are confident in approaching God. And the only way that we can do this is if we are forgiven. A few weeks ago, my daughter Iris, uh, she was having a pretty rough night going to bed. There was a lot of anger and there was a lot of just poor behavior. And I think I was handling it pretty well. Like I was pretty calm. About an hour later, it took that long, about an hour later, we were lying in bed, getting ready to pray before, uh, before she went to sleep, and I very calmly, just very calmly, explained to her how unacceptable her behavior was. It's possible I may have laid it on a little too thick, and I'm, I'm still a bit of a noob here. I'm learning, um, so just cut me some slack. And then she, through tears... She almost like cowered away from me and just filled with shame, she blurted out, I'm a bad person. And my heart, my heart there just ripped into two. Now, I thought better than to give a five-year-old a lesson on total depravity, so I looked beyond the substance of the words that she said and I hugged her. And I told her that I loved her, and I told her that she was forgiven, where before she was kind of physically holding back from me by the weight of her shame. Once she knew that she was in good standing before me, her whole demeanor changed. Now, I'm not God, very clearly, very obviously. So I'm not going to compare myself to God. I don't think that's a very good idea. But what the psalmist is describing in verse 3 and 4 is kind of like this. When we know that we are forgiven, our posture before God changes. It happens to other people as well. We can confidently come before God, and as it says at the end of verse 4, we can with reverence serve God. 
And that ordering, by the way, is super important. We don't serve so that we will be forgiven. We don't do things for God. We don't do things for the church. We don't do things for the kingdom of God so that we can appease God. There is nothing we could do to make God love us more or less. We are forgiven, therefore we serve, not the other way around. The writer then spends the next couple verses inviting the listener to slow down, to wait, to hear from God, to anticipate God. The writer has cried out for forgiveness and thanks God that he is forgiven. And now the psalmist yearns to be in full communion with God again. He uses the picture of a watchman guarding the city gates, waiting for the morning to come, waiting for the light, waiting for hope to be realized. He repeats this line, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning, we wait on the Lord. You get the impression that the psalmist doesn't simply want God for what God offers, in this case here, forgiveness, but the psalmist truly wants God, all of God. It seems is that even though the writer is assured of forgiveness, there is still this sense of unrest or tension. A watchman waiting for the morning light sounds like a lonely, hard place to be. The final couple of verses seem to bring some resolution to this tension. The psalmist reminds the hearers of God in verse 7 and 8 of God's unfailing love and exhorts or encourages the people of God to put their hope in this truth, in this reality. And then he moves to the promise of full redemption. Redemption or deliverance or ransom, those are kind of the three words that um, the Hebrew express as. Um, is about our ultimate hope in this life and the life to come. The belief that God will one day bring all things to rights and begin to begin the renewal of all things, starting with our sinful nature. It says at the very last verse, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sin, all of it, not just part of it, but the whole, full redemption, no wall of separation any longer. What's interesting to me here is that the writer starts from an individualistic perspective, crying out from the depths about his sin. And by the end, he's moved into speaking about the confession and forgiveness of all of the people of God. This is important for us in a moment as we explore more fully this concept of confession. Now, I admit that this is a tough topic for many in the church across the spectrum. In our worship structure at Courtright and in many churches around the, the globe, the prayer of confession is something that we include weekly. It is done in a variety of ways. It's pre-written sometimes. Uh, it's spontaneous other times. Sometimes prayer, prayers from the history of the church are used, um, all centering on the need to come before God in forgiveness for where we have wandered away. It's a moment of reality checking and humbling ourselves before God. Now, there are some churches that didn't do this at all or don't do it at all. There are some churches that can tend toward doing this from a place of kind of guilt and shame-inducing legalism, and that's unfortunate. 
And then there are some that do it, and it becomes just simply something you do each week. It's just another little check mark, a little thing that you do, and it becomes a bit of a rote ritual. For me, I never really grew up with any sort of formal structure in my church environment. There was never really any sort of kind of public weekly confession. Part of the reason why is that for many that might for many that might have grown up in an environment where it was legalistic, there was a sort of knee-jerk reaction away from something like public confession. But in my time here at Courtright, I have grown to find great hope and great meaning in our prayer of confession. It centers me before we hear the scripture. It allows me to move beyond some of the shortcomings and challenges I faced this past week, not ignoring them by any means, but acknowledging them and bringing them before God, seeking his forgiveness. There's something really beautiful about God's people collectively, individually and collectively at the same time, being forgiven for sin and receiving God's grace. This prayer, like many parts of our service, acts as a signpost for what our reality ought to be. That just as we confess weekly on a Sunday morning, we are to live lives of ongoing confession and repentance. And this is a part of our spiritual act of worship. And it's deeply connected to us living as living sacrifices from Romans 12. We sacrifice our pride when we confess. We humble ourselves when we confess. We elevate God and others before ourselves when we confess. We submit ourselves to God, admitting our faults, allowing ourselves to be refined, to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit when we confess. And this is actually really good for us. There are psychological studies that have been shown, that, that show us that when, uh, when we confess a secret part of our life, a part of ourselves that we're ashamed about that we would never want to tell people about under normal circumstances, it actually helps alleviate the mental anguish that we experience. And I don't mean that in some way where we're just assuaging the, uh, the guilt that we have, but it actually helps us to come to terms with our actions and it brings something that was previously hidden into the light. And we can't really fix something unless it is brought into the light. But nonetheless, confessing and saying that we're sorry is hard. It's really hard. Sometimes when I've done or said something to my wife, Lindsay, I'll do this whole kind of, I'll do a whole lot of talking and pontificating about what I did and why I did it. And at the end, she'll sometimes kind of say to me, like, that's great, but you never actually said you're sorry. And it's just like, it's difficult. Even if you, you can talk for, you know, you can talk for an hour about, you know, the psychological reasoning of why you did what you did. But if you don't say the words, sometimes it falls on deaf ears. It's difficult to say we're sorry, whether it's to God or to another human being, and especially the ones that we are in close proximity with. So how do we confess? What goes into a confession? The good news is, is that we are not bound by some stringent process here. Um, there's value in the process, but we don't believe that there is a need to run to a confession booth or, or confess specifically to a pastor or a priest to absolve you of that sin. We don't believe that that is entirely necessary, but it's not a, a bad thing necessarily. 
We don't even have to wait until Sunday morning when the worship leader uh, does the prayer of confession. This is something that we can begin right here and now in whatever moment you find yourself in. It could be sitting down each morning or evening, whatever works better for you, quieting your heart, breathing deeply, listening to God, thinking on the previous day and how some of the attitudes of our hearts might have affected us, how our actions might have affected us or others and our relationship with God. A great passage that reminds us of kind of how to do this is uh, Psalm 139, where King David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We allow the Holy Spirit to gently convict us. This can be scary and a little vulnerable. You know, there are times when I've sat down and I have struggled in those moments where I've sat before God, or at least I thought it was God, and I've only heard anything except, I've only heard anything, um, except condemnation. But as I've gone along, I've begun to realize that the condemnation that I was feeling was not of God, but rather from my own self. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, Paul says in Romans. Now, I will say that sometimes God does use extreme means to get us to pay attention to our sin. You know, we'll be in a situation with, uh, you know, where our lives are unraveling and it's just all our own doing. And it brings us to our knees in confession. But I actually hope that if we can instill this practice of confession— do it on a weekly, even better, on a daily basis, we hopefully won't ever get to that point. So there is individual confession, but there is also confession to one another. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. God meets us in that place when we confess to one another. Now, this could be directly confessing um, the way in which you've harmed someone, so you go to that person and you confess to them. This can also be more generally just going to someone that you trust. You may not have directly harmed them, but by bringing your sin into light so that um, a confidant can hear it and they can bear that burden alongside you. All of a sudden, you feel lighter and like that sin doesn't have a hold on you or define you the way it was a moment ago, which is absolutely true. Our sin does not define us because we are in Christ. We are forgiven. We are marked by grace and not by our failures. And when we confess our failures to someone else, they can help remind us of these truths and be a messenger from God, not to wallow in guilt and shame, but to be reminded of who we truly are in Christ Jesus. So there's individual confession, confession to one another, but there's also corporate or collective confession. This is where a particular church or possibly even an an entire denomination admit where they have erred and they publicly confess. This is first and foremost a, a public confession before God, but often it's a confession to the world as well. This week in particular, our world is crying out 
for a public confession in the wake of the discovery of the unmarked graves of 215 indigenous children at an old residential school site. There are no words, there are no words that can truly encompass the horror and the generational trauma that our indigenous peoples have experienced at the hands of the church. The Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the United Church, the Methodist Church, and yes, the Presbyterian Church in Canada all had roles in this. Though the perpetrators of this specific unjust system are no longer among us, that does not mean that we have no confession to offer. And here's what I mean by that. If I cause a physical wound to someone and that wound begins to heal, and, it, uh, and then it gets reopened by something and it becomes a fresh wound or it becomes infected, did I cause that secondary wound? I think the answer is yes. Confession is not a one-time deal. The ramifications of hurt come in waves. New discoveries mean new layers of confession and repentance. So we cannot speak of a systemic problem such as our treatment of indigenous peoples as if it's out there in some abstract way when we benefit and in some way uh, are recipients of the fruit of these injustices. There is more confession for the collective church body in Canada to do here, even as we consider some of our own personal prejudices and biases. Something that ex existed a mere generation ago does not go away that easy. Consider for a moment King Josiah in the book of 2 Kings. The book of the law is discovered after a long time of being um, hidden. And upon realizing the error of their ways, he tears his robe and he immediately confesses and repents and they go publicly confessing and repenting. They work toward making it right between them and God. Or consider in the book of Nehemiah after they've rebuilt the wall at Jerusalem and they read the scriptures aloud together for the first time in a very long time since exile. And the people collectively weep and mourn as they realize where they have erred. Collective corporate confession is critical for the health of the church. It is also important for our public witness as well. Among our culture, there is a healthy distrust for the church. And often I think to myself, who can blame them? But I also think about how we can build better bridges and, conf and confessing is one way to do that. Admitting when we've caused harm and taking steps to make it right. In Donald Miller's book from a number of years ago that he wrote called Blue Like, Blue like Jazz, he talks about his time on a campus, uh, campus at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. It's one of the most uh, kind of secular universities and one of the most secular cities on earth. And they decided to set up a confession booth in the middle of campus. The catch is that they were not inviting other people to confess, but rather they were confessing to the campus. 
Um, they confessed about the ways in which the church has caused harm. They, you know, confessed about the crusades, not caring for the poor and marginalized, televangelists stealing grandmother's retirement money, the way in which, we, they, in, in which they've been unloving and unchristlike. And people were blown away at this simple act, and people would respond and say, well, you didn't do all of those things personally. So no, no, but we are the body of Christ, and we have harmed, and we want to say we're sorry. Though they might not have been personally responsible for some of those things, we are one. That is one of the, the four facets of being the, the big C uh, collective church. We are one so when one part is in error, we collectively take that hit and we collectively confess. But confession is not enough. Confession demands a response. Confession, repentance, and making amends are critical in this conversation. This is not only about identifying, but turning away from sin and where needed, actively working to make it right again. As we grow in our understanding of what it means to live lives of worship and offer ourselves as living sacrifices, this is a crucial step. If there is someone we might have hurt and we've not gone to them to seek forgiveness, to make things right, it's possible that God sees our worship as in vain. In fact, in 1 Peter 3 verse 7, it says that a husband's prayers can be hindered by the treatment, by their treatment of their wife. Now, I don't want to extrapolate beyond the scope of that text, but I think the principle that we're seeing between um, some of these passages is that when we are in disunity with the people around us, it hinders our worship and our prayer life. And Jesus again speaks to this in Matthew 5, where he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gifts. In a way, this is taking things we've learned when we were kids saying sorry, saying why we're sorry, and making it right. I'm working with my five-year-old on this, and I'm frequently finding I'm perplexed by it, and then I'm realizing I struggle just as much now to say I'm sorry um, than I did when I was a kid, and I'm noticing now, it now in my own uh, child. One of my favorite moments, though, and this is where we want to kind of end off, one of my favorite moments in each prayer of confession is the moment where we shift from acknowledging our guilt to acknowledging the forgiveness that follows. In the latter couple of verses of Psalm 130, the writer says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. He himself will redeem. He will deliver us from ourselves and forgive us. We believe as followers of Jesus that Jesus is the fulfillment of that reality. Full redemption, full forgiveness, full love, full grace. This is what we encounter at the cross and the empty tomb. As Jesus was dying on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. 
Jesus forgives even those that have not confessed. He goes above and beyond. He sets the stage for radical forgiveness of those who have harmed us, even if they don't acknowledge it themselves. Today, we are thankful to God that we do not need to wallow in guilt, to be constantly prostrate in in a penitent uh, formation, though we may feel some of those things at times. Because of Jesus, we can stand before God the Father knowing fully that we are forgiven, knowing that we are fully redeemed, knowing that we are fully loved. And this love and forgiveness compels us to live a different kind of life, a life that is more and more about turning away from that sin, a life that is rooted in our identity in Christ. Christ and is led by the Holy Spirit and being sanctified and changed by the Holy Spirit. We're now going to partake in a prayer of confession. This is a pre-written one. It is from the Psalter from the Christian Reformed Church. And I've chosen it because I believe it encompasses so much of what we've been talking about today. There is great beauty in the reality that thousands, if not millions, of people have prayed the prayer that we are about to pray. I'm going to have it on the screen here, and I'm going to read it slowly. And my hope is that we will take seriously and hold deeply these words and hear them in hopefully a new light, in light of what we've heard. Let's pray. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another that we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not fully loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not always had in us the mind of Christ. You alone know how often we have grieved you by wasting your gifts, by wandering from your ways. Forgive us, we pray, most merciful Father, and free us from our sin. Renew in us the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen.